Okay, today we're going to be reading Matthew 14. So if you want to turn to your Bibles. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodus, his brother Philip's wife. Because John has been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people, because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodus danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths, and his guests he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch, the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of 
Genesaret? Yeah. yeah. You guys don't know either. <laughs> and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all the region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched were made well. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, we, we thank you for this group of people. You know, uh, we're called a congregation, but when one of us is in need, it's more than that. We're a family. We are friends, brothers and sisters. And Lord, uh, we just ask that you watch over Jared. Uh, we ask that you anoint Mark and help him to, to preach the word today that he needs to preach. And Lord, uh, we just ask that you watch over the Sunday school kids and help them to absorb the word and take it and, and spread it to their friends and family and, and just have a, a flood of your word brought to this community. Lord, we thank you for all your many blessings. We say this in your name, amen. Children are dismissed. morning. So I will try to get through this, but no guarantees. So yesterday, I came in in the morning to practice and polish my message, and I ended up rewriting the whole thing. <laughs> I hate it when that happens. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me. I'm going to be reading more than I normally do. Uh, and hopefully this will make sense and be a blessing. <laughs> so the story of Peter walking on the water is unique to Matthew. Mark and John talk about Jesus walking on the water, but neither of them include the incident with Peter. Luke doesn't mention it at all. Uh, when we put the three stories together, though, we get a pretty complete picture of what happened. And last week in the feeding of the 5,000, we saw that Jesus can take what little we have and turn it into more than enough. And Pastor Jackie last week said that we should not worry about what we don't have or we can't do, but rather we should offer what we do have. We should bring to Jesus our little talent, our little time, even our little lunch. Today, as we examine Jesus walking on the water, we will see that we even need to bring him our little faith, and we need to bring him our little faith with boldness. We don't need to be ashamed that our faith is weak. Jesus already knows that. But he wants us to take the faith that we have and step out boldly. Today, the story doesn't start with Jesus walking on the water. It starts with Jesus dispersing the crowds and sending the disciples away. Matthew 14, 22 through 24 says this, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. He made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. 
And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, I think when we read a passage of scripture like this, it's important to take a minute and just kind of set in our minds the picture of what's actually happening. You know, we read passages like this and they become so familiar to us that we don't really see the whole picture. And so let's take a minute and set that picture in our minds. The term immediately ties us right back to the feeding of the 5,000. So he feeds the 5,000 and immediately he sends the disciples away. And that, and that story of the feeding of the 5,000 sets the time as evening. So the day was drawing close to the end of the day. Matthew 14, 15 says, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. So I want you to just kind of imagine this in your head. It's evening. It's towards the end of daylight. Jesus and the disciples are with and possibly surrounded by this huge crowd of people. I don't know about you, but I don't like crowds. And the more crowded it is, the more uncomfortable I am. And this particular crowd numbered well over 5,000. Remember, we read it was 5,000 men besides the women and children. Some Scholars and researchers think that the number was actually probably between 15 and 20,000 in total. The crowd has witnessed the miracle of being fed from five fish and two loaves of bread. Many of them have been healed by Jesus. I imagine they're all tired, but certainly they're excited. There's an electric buzz running through this crowd as a result of what they've seen and what's happened. And then Jesus sends them away. That seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Not only does he send away the crowd, but he makes his disciples get in a boat and row across the sea. Why? Why would he do that? Verse 23 gives us a clue to the reason he went up on the mountain to pray. We know from earlier in Matthew that massive crowds were following him everywhere, and Jesus was forced to get away from them in order to spend time with God. The people clamored after him. They wouldn't leave him alone. When he got in a boat, they looked at the direction he was going, and they ran around the, the shore to meet him. They followed him from town to town. And so he's forced to get away to spend time alone with God. But there's still a piece missing here, and that piece is supplied by John in John 16, 14 through 15. John, telling this story, says this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, when they saw that he had fed them with, with the bread and the fish, and that he had healed so many of them, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then, then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus and the disciples are there. 
this huge crowd is probably surrounding them. At the very least, they've got their backs to the oak to the sea. And this crowd has this electric buzz running through it, and suddenly it becomes, let's make Jesus king. I can almost hear a chant starting, let's make Jesus king, let's make Jesus king. Take him by force, the scripture says, to make him king. Jesus knew that this was not his time, and nor was this the way that God had planned for him to become king. That's an important bit of information. Take him by force. And notice in the scripture that it's a little K king. It's not the big K king that Jesus truly is. These people had witnessed amazing miracles and they wanted Jesus to heal him, heal them and feed them. But did they really understand and believe? I think the answer to that is no. Jesus had filled their bellies and healed their sicknesses and their infirmities, but they wanted him to be the earthly king that they had been looking for, the political leader who would free Israel from Rome. And that was not God's plan. Now think about this for a second. If the people were beginning to talk about making Jesus a king, which is what John specifically reports, it's possible that the disciples would have also been swayed by this grassroots movement. The disciples were no different from the people in the crowd. They, their entire lives, had been looking forward to this king who would come and set Israel free from Rome. And now they're, they're faced with this crowd who wants to raise Jesus up on their shoulders and march him to Jerusalem and call him king, why wouldn't the disciples get excited about that too? I think they probably would. And so I think it's a good possibility that Jesus sent them off to isolate them from these popular sentiments. And at the same time, he dismissed the crowd to keep this demand from growing. It was a critical moment in his ministry, and Jesus must have also felt a need for serious prayer. The people here were offering him a smaller version of what the devil had offered in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 8, and 9. And there we read, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The people were offering Jesus kingship just like Satan offered him in the desert. All Jesus had to do was bow to popular opinion as earlier he had been asked to worship Satan. In the first case, when Satan tempted him, Jesus had spent 40 days in prayer before the devil came to him. Here, he needed to spend at least a few hours with his father. The Bible Author and commentator Howard Vos wrote this of this critical moment in Jesus' ministry. He said, Jesus' need for prayer was evident in view of the temptation to swerve from a course of action that would make him the sin bearer of the world. So what he's saying here is that Jesus was tempted to change course because the, the direction he was heading was the cross and the people were offering him something else. 
It seems pretty tempting to me. 15,000 people, 20,000 people, and they want to take you and make you king. I think I'd be tempted by that. Now maybe you think being crowned king by a popular movement wouldn't be a temptation for Jesus. But Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And you remember I talked about that wilderness temptation where the devil offered the, the lordship of all the kingdoms in the world to Jesus. Luke 4.15 says this, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. You see, Satan was waiting. So temptation under these circumstances seems to be not only possible, but perhaps even likely. The scripture doesn't tell us when that opportune time would come, but we can be sure that Satan was watching and waiting for one. So Jesus sends the disciples away, and then he performs a miracle that we don't often consider when we read this text. He commands an excited, boisterous crowd of many thousands who want to pick him up and make him king. He commands them to disperse, and they go. That's a testimony to the power and the authority of Christ. He says go, and they go. I'm reminded of the time in the garden when the soldiers came to, to get him, and they asked for Jesus, and he said, I am, and they fell to the ground. That's the power of Christ. He said, go, and they went. So let's go back to our text now that we have this picture. Remember, at this point, Jesus is on the mountain. He's praying, and the disciples are in the boat rowing through a storm. They're a long way from shore because the wind is pushing against them. And John tells us uh, in his gospel that they are three or four miles from the shore. Matthew 14, 25 through 33 reads this. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now again, I think it's important to flesh this out with a, with a little bit more detail so that we accurately picture the situation. Being in a boat on the sea was commonplace for most of these guys because... Several of them were professional fishermen before following Jesus. 
They were probably expecting a routine boat ride. Being in a boat was not anything new to them. They did it all the time. And perhaps they were even hoping they would get away from the crowds and enjoy a breeze and watch the beautiful sea as they rode to the other side. But that night, they were in big trouble. The problem was the wind. It wasn't a gentle breeze, but a powerful wind pushing against them. Their boat was literally being tormented by furious waves that wanted to swallow them up whole. The wind was so violent that the disciples started to panic. This was no relaxing boat ride. This was kind of like the three-hour tour. Some of you can look that up if you don't get that reference. (laughs) This was no relaxing boat ride. This was a ride of survival and getting safely to their destination. And Jesus had made them get into the boat, and they were now in deep, deep trouble. Perhaps, as I think I would have and maybe most of us, perhaps they wondered, where is Jesus now that we need him? Did he abandon us in the middle of this storm? This was a life and death situation. There would be no swimming in this storm if the boat capsized. There would only be drowning. This was the fourth watch of the night, according to the text. And that fourth watch took place between four and, or 3 and 6 a.m. So Jesus had sent them away during the evening time Now they're exhausted from the activities of the previous day and six or more hours of rowing through this windstorm. And during this chaos, what happens? Verse 25 says, And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Jesus comes to their rescue. What a hopeful thought that is. He comes not only to their rescue, he comes to our rescue too. He was revealing to them his divine power and his presence. In the Bible, the sea represents chaotic forces that can only be controlled by God. Job 9.8 says this, he alone stretched out, stretches out the heavens and tramples the waves of the sea. So when Jesus was walking on the stormy sea, he was doing something only God can do. By transcending the physical laws of nature, Jesus shows the disciples that he's not merely human, but the same God who created the universe. But from the perspective of the disciples, I imagine wet and maybe cold and frightened. They notice a human figure on the water moving towards them and they become terrified. They were seeing something that's totally impossible. They're already in the middle of the storm, struggling all night, exhausted by fatigue, tormented by distress and anxiety. So when they saw Jesus walking on the stormy sea, they couldn't recognize him. They were so focused on their fear 
that the only possible explanation for this water walker was a ghost. Have you seen anyone walk on the water? I dare say we would be afraid too. But I want you to focus on this idea that as they're in this boat and Jesus comes walking across the water in the middle of the storm, they can't recognize him. And I want to ask you this question. In the middle of your storm, do you recognize Jesus? Because he's there. When the disciples were terrified and cried out in fear, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 27. Jesus immediately said to them, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. When the disciples were at the end of themselves, Jesus came to them in a way that they could never have imagined. Jesus gave them great comfort by assuring them of his presence. We often despair when we run up against the end of our human limitations. And yet it is at this point of humility and helplessness that if we let him, we will most powerfully encounter God. Are you in the middle of a stormy sea today? That's where God meets us to comfort us and to say, don't be afraid. Fear not is one of the most repeated commands in the Bible occurring, depending on the translation, somewhere around 110 times. It often occurs along with phrases like, take heart, do not be dismayed. For example, Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dis dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why does God command us so often, don't be afraid? Well, I think, if we're honest, we have to say it's because we need to be reminded. We need him to tell us. Don't be afraid, I'm here in the middle of your storm, in the middle of your problems. I'm still here. He wants us to know that we are not alone. God is right beside us. He knows exactly who we are and what we're struggling with. But often, we are very susceptible to fear. We are especially afraid when problems are out of our control. Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. The disciples had no control over the situation they were in. And Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid. True comfort comes from Jesus, who is the very presence of God. Comfort is grounded in the word of God. His word helps us to overcome fear and unbelief. There is no other source of real hope or real help. We can look to the world. We can look to our friends. We can look to ourselves. We can look to the government. But those things are not going to provide us with real hope or real help. They will disappoint. Well, let's talk a minute about Peter. I love Peter. 
He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible because I often see myself in the things Peter does. He often gets a bad rap for being impetuous. He rushes in and he opens his mouth seemingly without thinking. He makes promises he has no ability to keep. But here's the thing about Peter. Jackie said this last week. He's not afraid of looking like a fool. Remember Jackie said he's not afraid of looking like a fool. Peter's not afraid of looking like a fool. He is bold and he has a bold faith. Now friends, in the Bible, a fool is something you don't want to be. But if you have to be a fool, let's be a fool for Christ. Let's be bold. Let's risk looking silly. Let's take that little faith that God gave us and give it to him and say, God, I'm bold. I need your help. I need more faith. When Peter recognizes Jesus and hears his voice, suddenly he's encouraged and comforted. And look at verse 28. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, again, we read these stories and they become commonplace to us, but this is not a commonplace request. This is bold. Peter says, Jesus, let me come to you on the water. What was he thinking? He's thinking, this is God. I don't think this is Peter being impulsive. Until now, Peter did not see Jesus as someone this big and this powerful. But now he realizes that Jesus is the creator God, and he's excited. When was the last time we were excited? Because we realize Jesus is our creator. He was asking Jesus for something that was totally, completely impossible with humans. Let's look closely at Peter's request. He doesn't say, Jesus, tell me to walk on the water. Instead, he says, command me, come to you on the water. His request wasn't to walk on the water. His request was to come to Jesus. Peter has a strong desire not only to know Jesus, but to also experience him. And in this story, he recognizes Jesus as God, and he is moved to deep devotion for him. We see this same devotion in Peter in John 21, 4 through 8, after the resurrection. It says, just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. You'd think they would have learned by now. But we haven't always learned by now either, have we? Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. This is funny. They've been here before. So they cast it and now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, 
He put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. This is a habit with Peter. (laughs) And then we read this. The other disciples came in the boat. Peter has a faith and a devotion and an attachment to Jesus that is extraordinary. Lord, command me. These are words we would all do well to learn to say. Peter recognized Jesus as his Lord and his King. He waited on the King to give him permission. We cannot use Jesus to serve our own agenda, no matter what good intentions we may have. Like Peter, we must boldly acknowledge Jesus as Lord and wait on him to work. Now look at verse 29. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. Once Jesus gives the command, walking on the water is simply a matter of trusting him. On Jesus' words, Peter steps out of the boat. I can only begin to picture this in my mind. Now I want you to remember the winds and the waves are still howling and lapping at the boat and pushing and tossing. And Peter puts his legs over the edge of the boat and stands up on the water. Amazing. Bold faith. By faith, he steps out into the great unknown. And then he takes steps and he walks across the water toward Jesus. For the first and only time in human history, an ordinary human being walks on water. This is not a story about risk-taking to test God for our own benefit. It's about radical discipleship taking a risk based on Jesus' words, being bold with the little faith that we have. Peter showed remarkable faith in asking to follow Jesus out on the water. None of the other disciples asked him to leave the boat. They clung to the safety, the relative safety, of what they knew rather than step out into the unknown. Now let me ask you this question. When Peter began walking, what held him up? You might think it was his faith, but that's not accurate. Peter's faith isn't what kept him afloat. Jesus was. And Peter knew that. That's why he didn't just leap out of the boat on his own. He asked Jesus to command him to come. And what Jesus did was honor Peter's faith by commanding the water to bear his weight. So here's the first lesson I think we can come come away with from this, this episode with Peter and Jesus, and that is this. It is the object of our faith that's important, not the faith itself or how big or small it is. Faith in faith is meaningless. Faith in science or faith in yourself or others or the government is doomed to disappoint you. Your only foundation in life is faith in Jesus Christ. 
And once Peter is outside the safety of the boat, standing on churning waters, suddenly things start to look a little dicey. Why? Well, because people don't actually walk on water. And I'm thinking he got out of the boat and suddenly realized, what am I doing? People don't do this. We become so familiar with this story that the utter ridiculousness of walking on water, much less asking if we could, doesn't strike us. We don't see it. But it struck Peter as he stood on those waves, and he starts to sink. Have you ever noticed that Peter didn't sink like a rock? The last time you jumped into a pool or the, excuse me, or the river, how gradually did you sink? <laughs> There's something profound going on here. Peter begins to sink when his faith shifted from the truth of Jesus' words to the instability of his circumstances. Some of us may find ourselves in that boat today. And when he did, it was Jesus letting him sink. Jesus was holding him up, and Jesus let him sink. And for Peter, that was a grace. Why? Because Peter's sinking produced his cry to Jesus. It quickly got his attention. He stopped looking to the world or himself as a source of truth and salvation and got his focus back on the Savior. And when he did that, Jesus pulled him up. Here's the second lesson we can come away from this passage with. Jesus' word is truer and stronger than what we see or feel. And when we doubt that, sometimes he gracious, graciously lets us sink to help us refocus. If you find yourself today struggling with doubt or fear, wondering where God is in the circumstances that we're in, God may be letting you sink slowly so that you can refocus your attention on Christ. Trusting in Jesus and his word over our perceptions is difficult to learn. That's why the Lord takes us through so many different faith-testing, faith-building experiences. If you've been a follower of Christ for any length of time, I'm sure you can look back and say, in this point when I had no idea what was going on, I see now that Jesus was with me. As I walked through this valley of the shadow of death and it was dark, I see now that Jesus was with me. As I look back over my own walk with Christ for 40 years, what I see is God's faithfulness. When he takes us through these faith-testing, faith-building experiences, it's never just for our own benefit. He displays his power so that others' faith will be strengthened too. Then when Jesus and Peter step into the boat for the first time, all the disciples offer Jesus worship. 
Matthew 14, 33 says, and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Peter's little faith built up the faith of the 11 other disciples. When we stand boldly on the word of God, we too will have faith to step out to do the impossible. Now, you know all the typical sayings that come from this passage. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. And don't get me wrong, these things are true. They're applicable. I've said and preached some of them myself. But as I studied for this message, I think I might have seen something new, at least something that I've never seen before. And it's found in Matthew 14, 32. It says, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. It wasn't until they stepped off the water that the wind and the seas calmed. The storm continues to rage until Jesus steps into the boat. This is not a story about getting people out of the storms. This is a story about getting Jesus in the boat. He will allow the storms to come into your life, and he even may send you out into them. Whatever struggle or worry or fear you face today is your boat. I've got my boat. I got my issues, and trust me, my boat is full. But they're my issues, they're not yours. And I'm learning to trust Jesus for my family issues, for my sin, for my worries, and for my fears. Now let's face it, I know some of you pretty well, and you've got your issues too. You've got your fear, you've got your storms, you've got your worries. And you can trust him too. That's your boat. He has allowed your storm for his purposes. He has allowed the storm that we find ourselves in now for his purposes. All you must do is faithfully endure until he steps into your boat. And when he does, the storm will be over. Matthew 14, 34 through 36 says this. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The work that Jesus had started continues as he moved now into this region of Gennesaret and healed those who were sick. It appears that Jesus had not been there before because it looks like the people did not know his face. It says when they recognized who he was. But when they recognized that this traveling teacher was Jesus, they brought their sick friends and relatives to him to be healed. These people knew of his reputation and one of the things they had probably heard was about the woman with, with the bleeding who had been healed merely by touching the edge of his garment. This is what they did too. They asked to touch the hem of his garment. 
Now the text does not say that these masses of people believed in him any more than those in the upper regions of Galilee. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed and cured people who ended up walking away from him. They were using Jesus for their own ends, just as the people who had been fed with the loaves and fishes wanted to use him by making him a king. Nevertheless, the Lord had compassion on these people and healed them anyway. God's existence and care for us is evident. The scripture tells us that we all know who God is, that the evidence in nature is enough, and that we are without excuse. That's a pretty important thing to understand. God's care and grace and love and existence is evident. And it's evident even if you haven't committed your life to him yet. You're just denying the evidence. The friends you have, the health you enjoy, the things you own, the job you work at, in fact, every single breath we take are God's good gifts to us. We must not be people who take God's gifts and yet refuse to trust in Christ. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Wait faithfully through the storm for him to step into your boat. Say, as Peter did with bold faith, Lord, save me. Cry out with the disciples, truly, you are the Son of God. That is how a person passes from spiritual death to life. Now I want to close today with, with a psalm of hope. And I pray that this will bring you comfort in the days to come as we wrestle with the brokenness and the disappointments in our world. This is something we should remember as we pray for Jared and his family. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, it's been a crazy couple of days. And Lord, in the midst of our storm, in the midst of this current storm, we can only be like Peter and cling to the little faith we have and wait for Jesus to come to us. Lord, we ask that you comfort us during this time. We pray again, Lord, for the Nebuchadnezzar family and for Jared.
I ask, God, that your healing would be upon him and that your peace would be upon him and the family. I pray as those of us in the congregation who know Jared and love him, and as we have questions, that you would allow us to bring you our little faith and you would help us to make that grow. I thank you, God, for the ways that you've blessed this congregation. I thank you for the family that we have here. We ask for your continued grace and mercy on all of us. Give us strength to be bold, to trust in you when everything looks dark, when the wind is howling and the sea is whipping at our faces. We ask that you help us to trust. So Lord, we love you. We seek your glory in this place. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.